0: Listening to Ohio V The
1: World, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty.
2: Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 3 of Ohio View the World. Today we'll be looking at Ohio versus Espionage. We are going to be looking at the little-known female codebreakers of World War I and World War II. And more specifically, we'll be looking at Westerville, Ohio's own Agnes Meyer Driscoll, arguably the most important American cryptologist in the history of the 20th century. Agnes was in, the, was in the Navy in both the First and Second World War, serving as a codebreaker. And even more importantly, in between those two wars, she was the one who broke the Japanese code, the code that made it possible for us to fight back against the Japanese Empire who attacked us at Pearl Harbor in December of 1945. Our guest today is a repeat guest, uh, one of my listeners' favorite guests from last season. It's Beth Weinhart the director up at the Local History Center in Westerville, Ohio. Uh, Beth is going to join us to talk about the career of Agnes Meyer Driscoll. Beth last summer actually worked to get a historical marker placed in front of her office at the Local History Center, which used to be the home of Agnes Meyer Driscoll, who grew up in Westerville, attended Otterbein, and later Ohio State University. We'll talk to Beth about her amazing career In the impact Agnes Meyer Driscoll had on World War I, and even more importantly, World War II. The Axis powers, Japan, Germany, Italy, they did not use their women to the extent that the United States did. They were very traditional cultures, in that women were supposed to be made at the home. But the Americans used over 10,000 women in the Navy alone as their code breakers. More than 70% of the people working in the cryptology department were females. The idea of freeing men to fight. These women, called WAVES, were women accepted for volunteer emergency service. WAVES is what they were known as in the, in the Navy. Were critical in the, in the Allies' war effort. And none of these women were more critical than Agnes Meyer Driscoll. Our mission today with Beth is to kind of shed some light on this incredible woman, her incredible work, and all the code girls who helped us win the war in the Pacific and in in Europe. More recently, more information has come out about these people. It's very secretive work. A lot of documents have been unsealed. Things like the movie The Imitation Game, focusing on famous British cryptologist Alan Turing, uh, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and another female codebreaker, played by Keira Knightley. A great movie if you want to go check it out really gives you an idea of what these codebreakers were going through as Turing and the British attempted to break the Nazis' Enigma code machine, a machine that also Agnes Meyer Driscoll would do a lot of work on in collaboration with the British. Also, the 2017, just last month, the book Code Girls by Eliza Mundy um, is an awesome book. It talks a lot about Agnes Meyer Driscoll and focuses on a number of different stories of the female code uh, codebreakers in the U.S. Navy and Army. A great book, again, Code Girls. We'll talk more about that later. Today, our beer for the episode is going to be Warped Wing Brewing out of Dayton. Um, we've done a Warped Wing before, uh, and and these Code Girls were really housed, many of them were housed in Dayton. Um, and we'll talk about that later in the episode. But we're drinking their, their Winter Warmer, their Winter White Ale. Uh, it's called... Esther's little secret. It's a Dayton beer. Nobody had more secrets than these U.S. code girls. It's a winter warmer. Um, it used to be a dark ale. But now it appears it's just a white ale. I'm drinking it right now, uh, but it smells chocolatey. It's got almost chocolate and vanilla cream in it. Um, Esther, I guess, is a local chocolate shop owner in Dayton. Um, it's an eight percent beer. It's almost kind of like a like almost a, like a dessert beer, but a very Christmassy beer as we come into the holidays here. Um, Esther's little secret from warped wing check it out really unique beer like i said smells like chocolate almost like a Reese cup um, but tastes great eight percent alcohol not very bitter um, again go to warpedwingbrewing.com they're out of dayton but you can find them at a lot of stores uh, especially here in central ohio i'm seeing more and more warped wing brew so go check them out also a quick plug we are also interviewing alexia winfield today Columbus, Ohio. She's going to be telling us about her Columbus Book Project. I just bought one of these. It's a great book that she put together with tons of designers and artists and models, um, photographers. Uh, It's a book called The Columbus Book Project, and it's really just two giant uh, coffee table books with unique uh, pictures and and, and things about Columbus in it. Uh, Alexia did a great job. We'll sit down with her for a couple minutes, talk about the launch party, but that book just came out Go to columbusbookproject.com and order some for Christmas. Very cool if you live in the Columbus area. Uh, it'll be on my coffee table book as soon as it gets delivered next week at the party. But without further ado, we're going to talk about Episode 3, Ohio vs. Espionage. We're going to be talking about Driscoll, Agnes Meyer, Madame X, as they called her, Miss Aggie. The original, the pioneer of American cryptology. She trained everyone. She breaks the Japanese code which was one of the most important and monumental things in the Pacific War that allowed the Americans to stay in the war and ultimately defeat the Japanese four years later in 1945. We have Agnes Meyer Driscoll from Ohio to thank for that. We'll look at her career. We'll look at the world of cryptology. And we'll look at the Code Girls who came into Ohio in 1943 and 1944 as part of the giant American war effort. But let's get ready to crack the code. It's episode 3, Ohio versus Espionage. Militaries have always used codes. As far back as the the Egyptians and even further. People like Julius Caesar used to use their own cipher code where it was just a transposition. So A would be, everything moved three letters down. A would be D, B would be E, so on and so forth. Some of the codes were too easy, some were too difficult. In the Civil War the Union Army used actually coded messengers. These messengers would have a little disc with them that would tell them which you know cipher code to use. And only they were the only ones who could deliver the message uh, to another messenger or another you know, general to have it deciphered um, to keep those very secret coded messages out of the hands of the, of the Confederate Army. The Confederates used a code that was obvious, was a lot of times too difficult, and the messages wouldn't be understood by some of the people receiving them. But armies have always used codes, and codes have played a huge role in both World War I and World War II. World War I for the United States, they had stayed out of the war, all the way through Woodrow Wilson's first term, and into 1917. But in that winter, early winter of 1917, the British decipher a code called the Zimmerman Telegram. The Zimmerman Telegram is basically sent from the German uh, foreign minister and sent to basically his diplomat, their ambassador in Mexico. Mexico and the United States had been fighting uh, a border war with you know, Pancho Villa and other forces throughout 1915, 1916. The Zimmerman telegram asked Mexico to side with Germany in the war. And in exchange with, with taking up and declaring war against the United States with German assistance, the Germans said that they would give them back the lands of Texas, New Mexico, in parts of Arizona. The British intercepted this message, delivered it to the White House, and within weeks, Woodrow Wilson and the United States had declared war on Germany in April of 1917. Code-breaking, code-making, huge parts of the, of the military intelligence, and still are today. Our subject for today's episode, Agnes Meyer Driscoll, was born in 1889. She's born in Illinois. At age six, she moves to Westerville, Ohio, just outside of Columbus. Um, her father took a job at, at Otterbein College, and when she was 18 in 1907, she would attend Otterbein, which she would for three years. She would transfer down to Ohio State, where she would graduate, majoring in mathematics and physics. She was very proficient in foreign languages. She was a great musician. Um, but also very incredible at math and science, she spoke fluent French, Japanese, which she would use later in life, German, which she also used, and in uh, Spanish. You know, from her, from her days in Columbus. Actually, her her parents, when she was in college, donated their home, which is now where Beth works at the local history center. Donated their home to the Anti-Saloon League, who moved into Westerville, the Prohibition lobbying firm that we talk about in episode three, Ohio versus Booze. Go back and listen to that episode with Beth. It's fantastic. But we ask our guest today, Beth Weinhardt, about Agnes Meyer Driscoll's early years growing up in Westerville, attending Ohio State.
3: Well, Agnes moved here with her family as a young child. Her father was a German immigrant uh, who was a music professor He came to Westerville to teach music at Otterbein University. He uh, was a very accomplished man, um, and um, Agnes attended school here. She grew up um, in the house at 110 South State Street, which is part of the Westerville Public Library today, and uh, houses the local history center. She um, attended Otterbein for several years, and um, her connection to the greater Franklin County area is that she attended Ohio State.
2: So she lived in the house that you work in, is that right?
3: That is correct, (laughs) that is correct. And, you know, uh, the other thing I want to point out is that um, there are still um, family members living in the area. So there's still a connection to present-day Westerville. Well, it's very unusual for a female of that time. She studied physics, math, music, and foreign languages. Uh, She was proficient in French, German, Latin, and Japanese.
2: Agnes would leave Columbus to take a job in Amarillo, Texas, where she was a school teacher. She ended up being the head of the math department. She taught music at a high school in Amarillo for a number of years. School teacher was about the pinnacle of what a female could could hope for in 19th century, early 20th century employment. Some of the smartest women in the world were relegated to being high school school teachers. It was the, basically the best job that you could get, other than nursing and other, and other types of you know, reception type of work, office clerical work. We asked Beth just about the place of women in the American workforce when Agnes Meyer Driscoll graduates in 1911 and takes her talents to Texas.
3: Well, I, I find uh, it's interesting what she was studying. I, I would continue wouldn't find many females studying math or physics at that point. Absolutely. Uh, and which was, you know, she was teaching um, music and uh, ended up head of a math department uh, in Texas, uh, which I think uh, is very unusual. Because most women were teachers. They were nurses, uh, They worked in clerical jobs or in service jobs, uh, waiting tables, cooking in restaurants, that type of employment.
2: Following the U.S. declaring war on Germany in the spring of 1917, Agnes Meyer Driscoll heeds the call. The Naval Reserve Codes had been relaxed by the Congress, allowing women to serve as Navy Reservists. Agnes gets appointed to the highest possible Uh, position as a Navy reservist which is called a chief yeoman uh, or a yeomanette and she takes a job basically in the mail department um, reading mail censoring mail but she also they ultimately see that they have someone very talented on their hands and the Navy sends her to the signal section the signal corps uh, under under the Navy it's clear to her supervisors that she has an incredible talent And they put that talent to use in code-making before she ever becomes a celebrated code-breaker.
3: Once she was working there, she was working in a clerical capacity. But I think it became apparent when you were around her that this is a very intelligent female. And the cryptology field was really just developing. Um, So they had her reviewing codes uh, so she would solve possible codes um, that they were thinking about using. Uh, and if she could break them, then they knew that they didn't want to use that code. So she was more, um, she was more a code reviewer in a mm-hmm. way at that point. Uh, and according to really one of the really good pieces about her, um, it's called The Neglected Giant, it's written uh, by Kevin Wade Johnson, who uh, retired recently from the NSA. He says, uh, and this is a quote, she got herself taught to be a code breaker to be a better code maker. Mm. So that's how she came to it.
2: So she, she actually started making codes herself. That's how she got into the code breaking. Correct. And I think Johnson even says that that's probably the best way to become a code breaker is to learn how to make your own codes.
3: Exactly. And and the whole process she had of reviewing codes uh, to, to uh, try to solve them uh, so she would know what made a good code and uh, what didn't. Uh, so that was, it was really the code making that, that led her into the whole thing.
2: Following the war, women were again banned from the Navy. Agnes was, was basically terminated and hired the next day as a civilian. Her work was too valuable. She'd become, already, even at this young age, one of the most important codebreakers in the United States Navy. But after a couple of years, Driscoll decides to take a job. She decides to go to work building cipher and coding machines to sell back to the U.S. military. We talked to Beth about those years uh, and the work that she did before ultimately returning to the Navy a couple years later.
3: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I've read several theories about why she left the Navy and went uh, to work in the private sector. Um, And some feel that at this point, she realizes she's as far as she's going to get, uh, in the structure of the Navy at that time. Um, but there's another theory that uh, her boss, Gresham, uh, invented a, uh, a a cipher machine um, and he invented that using some principles that she had devised. And he kind of persuades her uh, to leave the Navy. In fact, um, Four units of this machine uh, were issued the day after her resignation took effect in 1923. So there may be a link there. Uh, So she's going to try her hand um, in a more lucrative private career. And it's interesting because um, the the machine um, has many... Shortcomings uh, in, in terms of its engineering.
2: The Gresham machine.
3: Correct, um, and it, but it was used for many years. And after his death in 1935, his widow uh, put in a claim for compensation um, because neither he nor Agnes had ever received a penny for this. And actually, Congress, in a private act, um, awarded fifteen thousand, which was split between Agnes and uh, Gresham's widow. Um,
2: That's a lot of money back then.
3: It was more than she earned uh, in a year, her, her share of that. So um, she was involved with that. And then she also, what's kind of interesting is um, the, the War Department had perfected an anti-aircraft gun. Uh, and the radio mechanism for that was developed um, by uh, William F. Gresham and Agnes Meyer Driscoll. Wow. Uh, so it, it had uh, it meant that I think Gresham saw that if she was on the outside, they could do more of these projects. And um, then she then she got involved uh, with Hebern, who was working on a code breaking uh, machine. But that's kind of interesting also because she goes to work uh, for him. And he, I mean, here's this person who has uh, great abilities, but he he gives her the title of assistant secretary mm-hmm. and says, well, she could sign stock certificates and work on other things, but he doesn't talk about her technological background. And his whole... Um, his whole operation really doesn't get off the ground. He has financial difficulties and so
2: and he's trying to create a, sh- a machine to sell to the Navy, I think, right?
3: He is. Yeah. And you know it's uh, they're shareholders and it's um, it, it never gets off the ground really. but um, it is shortly after that. I mean, she is not out of the Navy for very long um, a year that, maybe a uh, year and a half about that amount of time, and then she is back in the Navy. And what's kind of interesting is when she returns to the Navy in August of 1924, she returns at 17.5% less pay than she was making when she left earlier.
2: It was difficult enough to be a female in an American working environment. You see in shows like Mad Men in the 1960s, up through the 1970s and even 1980s. But we're talking about Agnes Meyer Driscoll working in the ultimate man's world, the military, the U.S. Navy, in the 1920s. We asked Beth how difficult of a hostile work environment would probably not even fit the bill for someone like Agnes, a beautiful woman like herself, working in this male-dominated field of the military.
3: It's a very difficult situation for her. Um, she cannot be one of the boys. She cannot be chummy. She has to keep herself aloof. But of course, if you keep yourself aloof, then you're considered arrogant uh, and not a uh, comrade of everyone else. Um, and she was uh, married to a, a fairly prominent um D.C. lawyer, Michael Driscoll, and they entertained, but she kept her private life and social life uh, entirely separate from her work career. She didn't invite co-workers or any of the naval officers over to her home uh, to be entertained by her and her husband. She kept everything separate, Um, and I think she watched the way she dressed, uh, one of her co-workers um, described her as wearing very tailored clothing and no makeup. She didn't want to appear to be too feminine because that might detract from what she was doing. It's a real fine line you're walking as a female in this kind of military atmosphere and, and at the time. We're talking the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. Women are getting a lot more freedom at this point, but they're certainly not considered equal.
2: Right, and I mean, she, who does she turn to for advice? I mean, she's you know, she's a pioneer when it comes to that kind of stuff. When it comes to working in the Navy and being as high up as she is,
3: that's correct. I mean, there there are no uh, people that she could. There are no mentors for her. She's the first lady of naval cryptology. She trains all the all the males who end up being her boss, she trains. Right. So, And that would be an interesting dynamic also mm-hmm. uh, when you're a female. And quite frankly, at that point, uh, being brilliant as a female was not necessarily considered a desirable thing by the males of the world. Uh, <laughs> they they wanted wives. They wanted mothers. They didn't want a brilliant female Uh, teaching them how to do their job.
2: We want to take a quick break from the show to to play you a a quick interview we did with Alexia Winfield. Alexia created the Columbus Book Project, just released here November 15th. It's a two-volume Columbus-based coffee table book. Incredible pictures, stories, um, really awesome. It looks amazing. Uh, We purchased some here for for our office, our law office here. Um, But we want to play you real quick our interview with, with Alexia. And also invite you to her party, the launch party for the book. Uh, A lot of cool things planned. And that is on Wednesday, November 29th. Just a couple of days here uh, from now. Wednesday, November 29th at the Columbus Museum of Art.
1: And this was about three years ago. I just hit the ground running. I started just kind of curating and putting mood boards together of what I wanted to see within a coffee table book. Like what, what would I have wanted when I first moved here?
2: Yeah. I mean, how many different artists, you know, photographers, models, I mean, designers, how how many people pitched it on this?
1: Uh, It's about 250 folks from entrepreneurs. Yeah. Models, hair, makeup, artists, restaurants, um, all that. So it's a huge collaborative effort.
2: That's really cool. So you came from Florida um, but what is it about Columbus that makes you know, kind of a, such a cool, eclectic book like this possible?
1: Well, I think the accessibility to people, right? I mean, I was able to get in the rooms of, you know, like meeting former Mayor Coleman at the time. I met with Jamie Green, who previously did the Columbus Revealed book. Uh, I had access to Jamie Goldstein, you know, a, a huge leader within uh, greater Columbus Arts Council. Sure. Um, so I actually had some like folks who kind of counsel me and kind of help me navigate the process of putting a book together.
2: When's it available? How do my listeners get their hands on it?
1: Yeah, right now uh, we have orders going through our website, columbusbookproject.com. And uh, they'll, they'll also be sto- be in stores in a couple weeks, right? So we have identified four stores, locations that will carry our book. These are listed online, but I'll give them to you now. Uh, we have North Market, Stump, Gramercy, Book Loft, and Sweet Carrot, and so we strategically try to place uh, these locations in the different neighborhoods that we, you know, feature, but then also they're accessible to people.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're a block away from Sweet Carrot right now, so that's great. I already bought a copy, though, so we're good to go. Yeah. Uh, and tell us about the release party. The launch party is on November 29th. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so we uh, will have the launch party at the Columbus Museum of Art. Uh, we'll be in the pavilion space in the new area of the museum, so we're super excited about that. Uh, we anticipate to have at least 350 people um, oh, wow. within the room that night. Yeah, uh, we're, We are printing uh, content from the book uh from eight by tens to 36 by 48. So the, the, you'll have, Uh, opportunities to walk through the book, if you will, because those will be, yeah, printed in large format. Uh, We'll have a photo booth, step and repeat, you know, obviously food from Cameron Mitchell. We'll have uh, cocktails from Watershed Distillery. We also have been afforded the opportunity to bring in furniture partners. So Happy Go Lucky Her is actually providing two living room sets. Value City Furniture is also providing two living room sets. And what that creates, yeah, is a space where you kind of, we want you to walk, like pretty much, you know, we want to welcome you into our home and we want you to get inspiration on how to style your coffee table books so you take them home and you sell them how you see fit. So. That's really
2: cool. So what time is that on, on uh, the 29th?
1: Yeah, November 29th, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. That's a Wednesday.
2: All right, awesome. Thank you, Alexei. Absolutely, thank I'll see you. you on, uh, I'll see you on the 29th.
1: Yeah, see you there.
2: Thanks again to Alexia for joining us. We hope to see you guys at that, that party on Wednesday, the 29th. Upon returning to the Navy, Agnes Meyer Driscoll began focusing her work on the Japanese Empire. The Japanese were building up in the 1920s, building naval reserves, soldiers, weapons. Japan was a country that had very few natural resources of its own. If it wanted to get coal and oil, it had to go other places. The Japanese began building up a a military arsenal that becomes a threat to the United States in the Pacific. And in the 1920s and 1930s, Agnes Meyer Driscoll begins the work to break the Japanese codes. These important important codes that the Japanese used, whether it was ship-to-ship contact or telegrams, etc., things that we intercepted, in 1926, after three years, she cracks the Japanese Red Code book. Miss Aggie, again, three years. But we asked Beth about the buildup of the Japanese and how Agnes Meyer Driscoll played an important role in keeping the Japanese Empire from dominating the Pacific.
3: Well, I think what a lot of people, uh, don't realize is that after World War I, I mean, Japan and the United States were allies in World War I. After World War I, um, the relationship starts to go south. Um, to most viewers, it appears there's a good relationship. I mean, Babe Roof goes over and has youth mm. camps uh, for Japanese youth. Uh, we, you know, we have cultural exchanges. But something happened in the mid-1920s. It was um, something called the Johnson-Reed Act, uh, also known as the Immigration Act of 1924. And it restricted immigration from many European nations and denied even a token quota to most Asians. So uh, it barred immigrants who were ineligible for citizenship And that included all South and East Asians, including um, Indians, Japanese, and Chinese. Uh, And so Japan felt very insulted by this, and they reacted particularly strongly to this. Um, They organized consumer boycotts against American goods. They demonstrated against American cultural practices, uh, like the dances of the 1920s, and the Japanese Times and Mail uh, editorial um, in in 1924 called uh, the immigration law the Senate's declaration of war. Wow. Uh, And this is a time when Japan's becoming more militarized, and now... Uh, they're making the case with their people that we are insulting them and we do not want any people from their country in our country uh, and and the paper in that editorials uh, suggests that the Senate deliberately sought to sought to insult the Japanese. So this is pretty powerful stuff and the stage is being set for, uh, the conflict that comes later. So um, Agnes um, begins to work on um, the Japanese, um, what what became known as the Japanese uh, Red Code Book. Yeah, the um, Red Book. And um, <clears throat> uh, that and the, the solving of the Blue Code Book um, a little later are key to the military struggle that's starting to take place uh, and the contest in the Pacific between the U.S. and Japan. Japan wants the resources of Southeast Asia. The United States doesn't want them to be able to have access to that. Uh, and so there's this behind-the-scenes actual conflict going on that involves espionage um, and what who can get what up on who in order to have an advantage. Um, and, and this is the lead-up to World War II.
2: The problem with being a codebreaker is you look at someone like Agnes who breaks the red codebook after three years of work. Then all of a sudden comes to work one day, and now they're working out of a blue codebook, a whole new system. The nice thing about Agnes is she, she began to understand the Japanese systems. She was the U.S. Navy's go-to when it came to Japanese codes. So, when they come out with a new code book, she has to break the blue code. And they come out with another, you know, called the Ode, the orange code machine. And she has to go to work on that. We asked Beth just about those 1930s, the cryptologists that are being trained by Agnes Meyer Driscoll, who ultimately become our lead intelligence officers in the upcoming world war.
3: It's very small. Uh... It's a couple of codebreakers, a couple of clerical workers. There's not—this is, this is a battle that's going on, and it's a battle behind the scenes that people see is important. But even given that, a, not a lot of resources are given to her or that whole area in the Navy. Now, um, the, the other thing that's kind of interesting is how important she is at this point and in um, th- this whole buildup with these codes being broken and this back and forth um, between Japan and the U.S. leads to um, some interesting outcomes. For example... Um, We realize, because of this code breaking that the Japanese are building a battle, uh, a class of battleships that's two knots faster than anything the U.S. has on the drawing board.
2: 26 knots,
3: I think. Correct. And so we have to scrap what we're doing and retool. uh, And luckily we did that because that had an impact in World War II. But we retool so that we are a step ahead of the Japanese. And, of course, they do not know that we have broken their codes. Right.
2: And it's said, you know, I, I, from reading the, the Code Girls book, that discovery about the Japanese ship speed really did actually open the doors to a lot more funding for them and even some more personnel. Yes. Um, as we move to the second half of the 1930s, Agnes Meyer Driscoll begins work on what was called JN-25, basically the Japanese naval fleet's working code system. It's the most complicated system that she had faced yet. And as the Japanese began to be more aggressive and began to make war in the Pacific, her work becomes even more important. And her discovery, her cracking of the JN-25 Japanese naval codes, ultimately proved to be one of the most important events in the entire Pacific War. Her code breaking allows us to know the positions, the number of ships, the armaments, the batteries of the Japanese Navy. And when we go to war with them in the Pacific, it gives us an incredible advantage that Agnes Meyer Driscoll has afforded the United States Navy in their battle against the Japanese Empire. We asked Beth about Madame X and her ability to break Japanese codes.
3: Uh, Her code name at this point is Madam X, uh, or some people called her Miss Aggie. It took her three years um, using essentially pencil and paper. She was not using machinery much at this point. She's using her own brain power. There were 85,000 code groups in this code, so this is staggering achievement. and. The other thing I think is very interesting about this is how quickly she realized that they changed their code books. She simply looks at one line of code that uh, someone showed her and realizes immediately that they are using something different. Imagine, imagine how
2: crushing that would be when you're, you're at work and she makes that realization, you know, after well, all these years.
3: Yeah, because you've got to start all over. Yeah. Um, and for three years, they don't really know. While she's working on this, they don't know what the Japanese are doing. But the I consider uh, her work on those two code books to be some of her most important.
2: In 1937, disaster strikes Agnes Meyer Driscoll's life. She's involved in a very serious auto accident. People involved in the accident are killed. Agnes Meyer Driscoll is near death. A number of broken bones. You know, This was before the days of, of airbags and, and safety belts. She's nearly killed. We asked Beth about that auto accident and her recuperation in 1938. 1937, 1938, and how it marks a change in the career for Agnes Meyer Driscoll and a change in her life.
3: She's out of commission for 11 months, and in a field like she's in, when you're out for 11 months and there's this ebb and flow of young military officers who are coming in and out of the offices, um, and we're talking about uh, 37 when... You're seeing the real build-up to World War II. Yeah, this thirty-seven is, this is and
2: thirty-eight. Yeah,
3: crucial time to be gone, and um, and then when she comes back, people say she's changed. Now, I I don't know whether that's true or not. Mm-hmm. I kind of question because here you've had this woman who's very attractive. Uh, as she comes back, she's clearly uh, changed in appearance. She probably has chronic pain. And so people say, oh, well, her personality changed and her intellect changed <laughs> after all this. Well, I suspect that anyone who went through that kind of accident and had that kind of damage to their body would be different when they came out on the other side of that. Yeah. So, um, and I think also that because she was a female, she is judged by her appearance, so when she comes back and looks different, there are descriptions of her as a hag, a witch.
2: A witch, you see that a lot, yeah.
3: Um, and so people are responding to her that way. Well, I'm sure her response to them might have changed also mm-hmm. because of the way they respond to the change in her appearance.
2: Pearl Harbor was basically the 9-11 of its day. Our grandparents' generation's 9-11, an event that shocked them, an event that let nearly the same amount of American citizens killed as the 9-11 attacks. And much like the 9-11 attacks, there was a review process after it. What went wrong? How could our intelligence been blind to this pending, enormous surprise attack? Agnes Meyer Driscoll had actually just been taken off the Japanese projects in 1940, and moved over to working on the German Enigma machine. Agnes had been out for a country drive with some friends that day, December 7th. It wasn't until after they stopped to get some lunch at a local store that they found out the terrible, shocking news coming out of Hawaii. Except Agnes wasn't really shocked. But we asked Beth about Pearl Harbor, about Beth's reactions to it, and whether or not the U.S. knew. There are some controversy and some conspiracy theories that say FDR knew about the attack and let it go forward anyways as a method to get America behind its war plans.
3: What the U.S. knew at this point is rather controversial, and what she knew at this point is rather controversial. Um, There are people who think that uh, a lot of the Navy brass and um, right up to President Roosevelt uh, knew more about the Japanese plans than, than we've been told, um, and it's kind of interesting because in the Freedom of Information Act, a, a document was discovered, and Franklin Roosevelt called this uh, the Splendid Arrangement, and the Splendid Arrangement is the fact that we've broken the Japanese codes, and we know what they're doing in the Pacific, there are 36 Americans cleared to read the Japanese diplomatic and military intercepts in 1941, uh, and this, this, of course, is when Pearl Harbor happens. Um, so who are these people? R- right at the top of the list is President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You've got Secretary of State Cardell Hall. You've got Secretary of War Henry Stimson, and then uh, George Marshall Uh, All all of your military, army, navy people, there's one civilian on the list, and there's one female on the list, and they're one and the same person. They're Agnes Meyer Driscoll. She had read enough of the intercepts to know that they were planning to do harm to us. I mean, that was very clear.
2: In the spring of 1942, the war was not going well for the United States. A string of Japanese victories had crushed American morale. They had been kicked off of nearly every island in the Pacific. Pearl Harbor was just the first of many coordinated attacks throughout the Pacific. The United States was on the run. But the one thing the, United States, the Japanese did not know, and what Yamamoto, who was the leader of the Japanese forces, who made the attack on Pearl Harbor, what they did not know said, thanks to Agnes Meyer Driscoll, we had broken the JN-25 code. And as we moved towards the summer of 1942, the Americans had deciphered that a giant force would be coming spread out, but a large Japanese naval force would be coming to take what was called the island of Midway. Near Hawaii, Midway was an important submarine station for the United States, but more importantly, the U.S. knew when, where, and how many Japanese ships would be descending at one time on one target. With this information, they put together a, counter, a counterattack. Admiral Nimitz and the U.S. Navy, using planes and carriers, had a perfect plan. And on June 4th, 5th, and 6th, in the Pacific outside of, outside of Midway, the U.S. Navy would crush the Japanese. A first huge victory... And probably the turning point in the entire Pacific War, maybe along with you know the ground campaign at a place like Guadalcanal, where we showed that we could beat an entrenched Japanese enemy, and hold our ground. But the battle at Midway was largely, in part, thanks to Agnes Meyer Driscoll, it crippled the Japanese Navy, which no longer had the advantage in the Pacific. We asked Beth very quickly about how intelligence and code breaking played a role and that incredible victory.
3: But they did some amazing things. Um, The Battle of Midway, Uh, Agnes actually was um, key to that one also. She solved the cipher component of the 5-num system uh, used by the Japanese after the Blue Book, and that um, she was part of the solution that allowed the U.S. to know uh, where that attack was going to come that it was going to come to midway. And so we were prepared, and really that was the turning point in terms of naval battles uh, for the war, even though it happened early in the war in, in for the summer of 1942. Mm-hmm. It really uh, means that Japan can't recoup uh, because of the loss of their aircraft carriers. And the same thing with uh, the downing of Admiral Yamamoto's plane. I mean, intelligence led to that. We knew where he was flying.
2: If we consider Pearl Harbor to be the 9-11 of our grandparents' generation, the mastermind of that Pearl Harbor attack, almost like the Osama bin Laden, one of the most hated figures on the other side, was a man named Izaroku Yamamoto. Yamamoto was the mastermind of that attack. He was also the commander-in-chief of the Combined Fleet for Japan. He led their navy, which included back then the Air Force. But it was Yamamoto's incredibly brazen plan for the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor. It was Yamamoto whose miscalculation at Midway led to a Japanese defeat. But in the spring of 1943, Female codebreakers, headed out of places like Dayton, Ohio, and Washington, D.C., deciphered a code planning on Yamamoto to make a flight. He was going to make a flight very close to New Guinea. They knew when he would be there, how many ships would be escorting him. And the United States planned an attack, an attack that boosted morale so heavily across the entire continental United States. And they targeted Yamamoto's flight, and they found him. And above the the country of New Guinea, Admiral Yamamoto was shot down and killed. It was female codebreakers who deciphered that code, who put a plan of action into the Navy, into our Air Force, to shoot down the mastermind of Pearl Harbor.
0: Yes! the supreme Japanese naval commander, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, mastermind of the dastardly sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, gunned from the skies of the South Pacific. These brave sky fighters of the 339th, 70th, and 12th fighter squadrons realized that they and their lightnings wrote a chapter that history may regard as the turning point of this war. April 18th, 1943 while evading attacks from escorting Zeros. Captain Tom Lanfear, Lieutenant Besby Holmes, and Lieutenant Rex Barber brought down two bombers transporting Yamamoto and his staff. Days earlier, an alert radio operator intercepts the secret message listing Yamamoto's flight schedule to the Bougainville Airfield, 435 miles north of Water Canal. The code cracked. The Admiral has no chance of making it. No chance. Thanks to our boys ready to give their lives in the perils of the sky. Fiery end for Japan's greatest military mind. Thanks to these brave warriors, that 18th day of April brings our forces a day closer to victory.
2: Women began enlisting and working in the field of cryptology in droves. We talk about the Code Girls book by Liza Mundy. She talks about the journey to Washington, D.C., a place called Andrews Hall, where a lot of these women work. They brought women in from all the seven colleges, the female colleges in the Northeast, school teachers from the South, all kinds of Americans, American females coming together to work on the war effort. And it was predominantly women who did the code-breaking in the United States, a little-known fact that's slowly coming to light, stories like, of people like Agnes Meyer Driscoll. But these women had incredible pressure on them. They had husbands and brothers that were in, in the Pacific and in Europe, and they're trying to break codes, find the German U-boats, find the Japanese submarines. And every day they're hearing on the news of another attack, Another ship sunk, more American lives lost. We asked Beth just about that pressure, uh, just about the female code who who've really never worked before, now being called on to do such an important job.
3: Once the war really starts to gear up, and we we recruit young women, uh, really the best and brightest out of the the colleges in this country. Uh, to go work on these intelligence projects, these are these are uh, not seasoned veterans like an Agnes Meyer Driscoll. These are young women uh, who haven't lived a long life, and they're seeing all of this carnage, all of the tragedy of the war. Some of them had relatives who died. Some of them were engaged and married to people who died. This is um, it. It really plays with your to think, well, if I'd solved that code a month ago, if I had done this. Uh, so it's an incredible pressure on these women.
2: Code-breaking in World War II continues to evolve. And more importantly, in the world of code-making, the Nazis have something called the Enigma machine. And Enigma can have up to you know 150 million different permutations. Agnes Meyer Driscoll is switched in 1940 after breaking the Japanese J25, J, JN-25. She's switched over and begins working in collaboration with the British on the Enigma machine. But this machine is beyond anyone's capabilities. Again, encourage you to watch the imitation game to learn about how the genius British cryptologist Alan Turing finally, finally busted the machine. But it's busted through the creation of computers, early computers, by men like Alan Turing. The creation of early computers designed for code-breaking skills was not something that Agnes Meyer Driscoll had much of a role in. She was a paper and pencil girl. We talked to Beth about Enigma, about this incredibly difficult project, and how it begins to spell the end of Agnes Meyer Driscoll's preeminence in the world of American cryptology.
3: Enigma. Yeah. Uh, the German thing. And what's interesting is, so she's assigned to that in 1940, 41. No one's quite sure of exact date. Um, and she is one of five people who are assigned to this. So it's not like we're throwing everything at this because the Navy really was concentrating on Japan and that theater of the war. Uh, in 1940 before that conflict begins and earlier in 1941 before it begins. And so um, to take personnel from that and put them uh, on something that involves a the European theater and Germany uh, was um, it, it wasn't heavily supported. And um, and it becomes, um, it becomes a problem. And you're exactly right, Alex, is her method of working. This is not a problem that's going to be solved by um, Madame X and her sharpened pencil and paper. Uh, and they kept throwing more people at this. I mean, it started out with five, but they, they threw more people at it. But it would have taken countless people forever uh, with pencil and paper to do this, and there was not that kind of time frame. They needed this solved sooner, and her reluctance to rely on machinery uh, really led to her being um, shifted to less important projects, because as we go through the war in the late 1940s. Machinery becomes the key to solving all these more and more sophisticated codes. And her reluctance to use machinery and suspicion of it and her, um, her belief in her own brain power um, leads to her being um, sidelined.
2: A few thousand women descend on Dayton, Ohio, a building, a facility is built. Uh, a facility that's housing, it's owned by National Cash Registry, and thousands of American women began working on computers and machines and code breaking, having to do with Enigma. Agnes Meyer Driscoll remained in Washington D.C., but these women moved to moved to Dayton and took the community by storm. Suddenly, there were thousands of women who, they did not know what they were doing there. It was a big project, but they were very secretive about it. Places in southwest Ohio, like Cincinnati and Dayton, there were places where these women were not supposed to go. They had been told during their you know, tutorials and during their orientations that there were a lot of German-Americans, German sympathizers in southwest Ohio. Uh, and that was somewhat true. They were encouraged to go in pairs anywhere they went in those areas. But these women moved to Dayton, and they make a huge difference in the war. And again, our book today, the Code Break, uh, the Code Girls book by Liza Mundy, talks a lot about those years in Dayton, the experiences those women had, uh, the reaction of the community, uh, and how they were accepted ultimately by the Dayton community as as such an important part of the war effort. Even though they had no idea what these women were doing, they all told every man that you're on a date. Any of the women in in this in Dayton that they were all there doing clerical work. What they were really doing was the center of espionage discovery, the center of code-breaking in the U.S. war effort, was right here in Ohio, in Dayton.
0: Following the Japanese
2: surrender, as we discussed in Episode 1 of this season, Ohio versus the bomb. Agnes continues her work. Her department basically becomes what today is the NSA. She continues working, starting in 1945, on Russian codes. And Agnes Meyer Driscoll, uh, although less important than she was in between the wars and the early part of World War II, she still is a force in the American code-breaking operations when it comes to the Soviets. And as the Cold War sets in, Agnes would spend another 15 years at the agency. She would ultimately be inducted into the NSA Hall of Fame in 2000, which apparently is a thing. Um, but Agnes Meyer Driscoll, again, would never reach the prominence that she had in between the wars. Those years when she was breaking the Japanese code, Agnes was our best codebreaker to try and understand what the Japanese Navy was doing. She retires in 1959. There's no big celebration. She just simply went home. An incredible career spanning over 40 years. We talk about her legacy and her years in the Cold War as a Cold Warrior working on Soviet codes. We ask Beth about those post-war years.
3: When we get further into her career, I think uh, there was some make work that she was given, um, to, to keep her busy. And what's interesting is in some instances, she produced results out of that make work that other people hadn't. Uh, so she still is capable of doing good work, but things have moved on. Um, you know, it, it's like the, the blacksmith who shoes horses. That was an important thing at one point, Mm -hmm. but, Uh, When the car comes in, not so much. And with the advent of machinery um, and and the whole uh, world of computers, uh, things move beyond the pencil and paper stage of of solving these puzzles.
2: If you travel into downtown Westerville, Ohio, outside of the library, there's a historical placard there for Agnes Meyer Driscoll, Madam X, Miss Aggie, as they called her, Agnes Meyer Driscoll would die in 1971, 12 years after leaving the NSA. She's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. That marker was put up through years of effort from our guest, Beth Weinhardt. And last summer, Beth had a ceremony where the, they dedicated the marker. We asked her just about, about Beth Uh, Beth's efforts to to get Agnes Meyer Driscoll recognized we asked Beth about that historical marker and we encourage any of our listeners driving in uptown Westerville northeast of of Columbus check that marker out send us a picture of it because it's a pretty cool story and it's all thanks to historian Beth Weinhart
3: well I think part of it was when she retired in 1959 there was very little recognition given to what she had done Um, it, it, there were no publications about it. Um, and I think part of that had to do with the fact that she was a rather secretive person herself and avoided the limelight. That was one aspect of it. And, um, a lot of the things she worked on really were still, um, unknown to most people. Um, and it's not until you get to the Freedom of Information Act and more things start to come out about the, uh, the espionage, the code breaking uh, before World War II, that people begin to look at her and she uh, gets discovered. And, um, and I think it's lovely that the NSA uh, took her into their National Hall of Fame uh, in 2000. So she is honored that way by them. They recognize her contributions. And then one of their employees, um, Kevin Wade Johnson, spent time researching, talking to the family to write a book which really describes her in its title Neglected Giant. And um, I, I think I think we'll see more about her and uh all of the things she dealt with. And in the new Code Breakers book, uh, uh, Code Girls, she figures in that. So we're finding out more, and I'm thrilled for her. And we, uh, in July of uh, this year, 2017, we honored her by placing an Ohio History Connection marker on the front lawn of the building where she spent her youth. And it was a very emotional occasion um, because her great nephew, who served in the Navy, came to talk about her in his naval uniform. The whole family um, has a tradition of being in the Navy after she and Margaret uh, he was in the Navy. His son uh, was a Navy SEAL, retired now, who served in Iraq. And he attributes his Aunt Agnes to leading the family into the Navy as a career. And I think that's a wonderful legacy that goes on today. Um, the marker uh, was uh, is very special also for two other reasons. Um there are not a lot of markers uh, that honor women from World War One. That's kind of rare, and uh, because she's if part of her service was in World War One, that is indicated on the marker. So it was um, really a great occasion. A lot of people came out to honor her and to hear about her. And I think she would be pleased, even though she was very secretive. I think she would be pleased that in front of her childhood home is a marker that recognizes her accomplishments and her importance in our country's history.
0: From Garfield's tomb to the serpent Mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history. There's so many books you need to see. I like reading. I like reading. The tip a canoe in Tyler, to From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue. Edison and a man on the moon. So many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading.
2: Our book recommendation for today is Code Girls. We talked about it throughout the whole episode. It's an incredible book. just came out in October of this year by Liza Mundy. An incredible story of the female codebreakers who helped win World War II. It does discuss in detail the work of Agnes Meyer Driscoll, but also of dozens of other female codebreakers who made such a huge difference in our war effort. So go pick it up. Again, Code Girls, one of the most fun reads I've had this entire year. Uh, a great new history book that's out there. Again, special thanks to our wonderful guest, Beth Weinhart, and all that she's done to promote local history and to promote the legacy of our our subject today, Agnes Meyer Driscoll. Uh, Lastly, we want you to check out the Columbus Book Project. Go to columbusbookproject.com, order this coffee table book. It's so cool. Uh, And our friend Alexia did such a great job. We will see you guys at the launch party on November 29th, that's Wednesday, at the Columbus Museum of Art. But that'll do it for today, guys. Really had fun talking about this very little-known subject That's slowly, thanks to people like Beth and authors like Liza Mundy, starting to come to light an unknown piece of American history, and certainly an unknown piece of Ohio history. We'll be back, and basically this is going to be our first in a series of Episodes that are all going to be released the same day. So usually on Monday mornings, you might want to check late Sunday night, but mostly Monday mornings, every other Monday, we'll have a new episode for you. So our next episode will be two weeks from from now on December 11th, I believe. Um, And that'll be episode four. And it's going to be another true crime episode. We'll be talking about the 1975 murder... Of 14-year-old Columbus resident, Christy Mullins. A murder that shocked Columbus. A murder that was not solved for over 40 years. We'll talk to a man, an author, New York City attorney and author, John Aller will join us. John wrote a book about Christy Mullins' murder. And it's his investigation that ultimately reopens this cold case. And in fact, in 2015, 2016, solves the case. So we're so excited to sit down with John. He's written a bunch of very cool books, um, and we're going to do a couple episodes with him, so we much appreciate it. Special thanks again to our friend Jason Lee McCormick from Portland, Oregon, doing our, our songs for today, our music. You can check out his latest album, Into Echoes, uh, at jasonleemccormick.bandcamp.com. Again, jasonleemccormick.bandcamp.com. So again, hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. It's great to be back on the show. Episode 3, Ohio versus Espionage. Share it with your friends. Rate and review the show. Again, anyone who sends us an iTunes rating, we will read it on the air during episode 4. Just give us the 5-star review that you know you want to give us. And write a review of the show to let us know what you dig about it. And again, we'll read that on the show. We've got t-shirts. If you want a t-shirt, email me, OhioVTheWorld at gmail.com. And we'll be back every other week, every other Monday, to give you guys new episodes of Ohio V. The World. Take it easy.
0: For so many decades, so 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.